For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet Cynthia L. Hardy, the creator and star of the biographical and musical play Billy, backstage with Lady Day. Find out how a U of A professor updated a 30-year-old cookbook that represents the black community in Tucson. Remembering swimming champ Rico Browning, the original creature from the Black Lagoon, who has died at age 93. And a poem from artist Rick Wehmer from his collection Long Shadow Days, Grief Walking, about what a kit a cat can be. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Today, almost 65 years after her death, Billie Holiday is still easily one of the most popular singers in the world. Cynthia L. Hardy grew up in a Chicago household that treasured blues and jazz, and she can't recall a time when Holiday's voice wasn't well known to her ears and her heart. Thirteen years ago, Hardy created the biographical musical Billy Backstage with Lady Day, which soon received multiple NAACP awards. It's the reason Hardy is visiting Tucson on March 18th and 19th as a guest of Invisible Theater. I spoke with Cynthia L. Hardy from her home in Los Angeles. It takes place backstage as Billy is getting ready to go do a show and is being interviewed by reporters who are the audience members. And uh, so the first half of the show is telling stories and dressing and getting ready to go do concert, which is the second half with a uh, four-piece band. The first half has a piano. So there's, you know, like some rehearsing, a couple of songs and stuff like that. So it all takes place backstage until the second half. What are some of the things on your mind when you're singing as Billy? How would it be different if Cynthia Hardy was singing a song for us as opposed to Lady Day? Ooh, okay. That's a good one. I always feel you have to feel the songs. That was one of her traits, being able to feel the songs and move the audience. And I aspire to do that (laughs) all the time. But um, when I'm singing with her, I just want to get into the stories and get the essence of what she was um, going through in that particular moment. Like Strange Fruit, for instance, with the lynching of uh, the Negroes back then, you know, the African-Americans. And so that's a completely different story and feel that I try to convey than the other ones. I understand that takes an important place uh, in your play. So tell us about that song and what is on your mind when you have to sing it. Well, Strange Fruit was written as a poem by Lewis Allen. He was actually a Jewish man. So one of the things that propelled Billy to sing the song was her father. And I tell this in the show. Her father was refused entry into a hospital when he had pneumonia. And uh, he was in Dallas, Texas, and so they refused him in the hospital. And he finally ended up going to a veterans hospital. And they put him in the Jim Crow ward. But then it was too late, and he ended up dying. She equated that with the lynching and her father was treated the way he was because he was a negro that's one of the things that propelled her to do the song 
how would you describe the spectrum of emotions that you're giving through the character of Billy when you're in the first part of the play? What kind of places does her mood take her as she talks to the uh, audience slash reporters? It's a range of emotions. Coming in, it's anger from not being paid, you know, singing and not being paid. Her mother passing away, so that's another emotion that we deal with. And then there are some funny stories. So it just goes a range of emotions. You kind of go on a journey. (laughs) Cynthia, do you give yourself room for improvisation when you are performing in Billy? I do, but I try to stick as much to the script as possible so that the story can be as fresh to each audience. But there are moments, there are some improvisational things, you know, because it is live theater, uh, things happen. And you're working with another artist on stage who is providing some accompaniment on piano. Tell us about that. Lanny Hartley is the musical director, and he's fabulous. He's just been around playing with a lot of people. In the first half, it's the two of us, and we, you know, we're doing some rehearsing for the numbers that we're going to do in the show. And uh, some of the stories, you know, I get to include him in as well. So he has uh, some lines. He has to be an actor and piano player. <laughs> but um, and he fits the bill just well, just fine. Can you share with us some of the things that you hear from your audience? Have you met people who have seen the show or have corresponded with you who have shared stories about Billie Holiday that have impacted you, perhaps even something that you've incorporated in your performance? Yes, I have heard many stories since the very beginning. I mean, I've met people who were with her management. I've met people who were roommates with her. You know, they had a hotel or they lived in the same um, room. One of my favorite stories is this guy, one day I did the show and I was walking off stage and I just heard these feet running behind me and it was this man. He came and he grabbed me by the shoulders backstage. You know, it really startled me because you know he wasn't supposed to be backstage. But he gave me the biggest hug and he told me that he knew Billie Holiday and he had, he sneaked into her show when he was 15 and she talked to him that she was really nice to him and he took pictures he actually gave me a copy of the picture he took with her and her dog it was just amazing and he was telling me how i had her essence and how i did her justice because he i guess after you sneaked in they stayed friends for years and uh, so that was you know one of them and there's some older singers, Linda Hopkins, who's passed away now, but she knew Billie Holiday. She and I became really close, and she would tell me stories, funny stories. Because what a lot of people don't know is that Billie Holiday was really funny and a prankster. That I found in my research, but Linda Hopkins <laughs> just confirmed that. So those were some, you know, some feel-good stories that we don't hear a lot. Invisible Theater welcomes Cynthia L. Hardy to Tucson for two performances of Billy backstage with Lady Day, Saturday, March 18th at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday, March 19th at 2 p.m. at the Burger Performing Arts Center. Full information can be found at invisibletheater.com. A University of Arizona Africana Studies professor has just updated a 30-year-old book of recipes representing the local black community.
Africana students at the University of Arizona were assigned to find some of the original contributors, conduct interviews, and gather community stories old and new. Here now is Tony Perkins and a conversation with Professor Tani Sanchez about the cookbook called Meals and Memoirs 2, Recipes and Recollections of African Americans in Tucson, Arizona. Well, first of all, tell me a little bit about the original cookbook and when it was written, what it was like. Was it just a set of recipes from the black community or or was it deeper than that? It was deeper than that. Um, there was a group, and we existed for several decades, called the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society, Tucson chapter. And we were doing a lot of projects that I thought were so interesting. We would have meetings and we would talk about our family histories. We would talk about our genealogical research and uh, we would share stories. It was just a, a really good group of people who were interested in Black topics, interested in Black connections and Black community. And because we had programs going, we would have annual meetings and other projects. We needed a fundraiser. I had been thinking about cookbooks that I bought while I was in the military. Um, I was in the army for several years and I would every now and then these uh, cookbooks of women who were in the military or wives in the military, they would come out and I would buy them and I would always be so impressed because it was really good cooking. And I said, okay, why don't we do this? Why don't we do a cookbook project, but incorporate the things that we are very interested in, which is African-American history, profiling African-American movers and shakers and, and ordinary people as well. And uh, the group liked the idea and everybody really got into it. Um, they knew people, they said, well, what about this person? What about that person? And um, my mother, for example, she decided to submit recipes, but she submitted them under the names of family members. In other words, like Dale's pie or something like that. But people went out and they got the people that were really important in Arizona. Now, we know a lot about stories that are connected with food and ethnicity and neighborhoods from other cultures. What have you... Uh done to update this book to educate people about African-American culture and food in Arizona? Well, from the very beginning, in the very first book, we had um, some dishes that represented Native American culture, that represented Pennsylvania Dutch culture, as well as very strongly the soul food culture um, that maybe came from the South, and then whatever people wanted to do. So in this updated version, we have, again, included all kinds of food. We have now uh, the inclusion of some African foods, some soups and other dishes. We have also looked at the ways people eat differently now. Many people are vegan. Many people uh, want to minimize pork or minimize meat. So that's in there as well. We wanted to put a little more emphasis on healthy food. So I went in and I did a lot of editing and I included notes from the Food and Drug Administration so that people would get an idea of what chitlins were and how the Food and Drug Administration recommends handling them. And then also I kind of got into looking at 
the histories of food. For example, I'm going back to chitlins, that this is food that's eaten all over the world. But because it's something that came out of the South, it was not maybe the first choice. There's such a stigma to it, but it's actually eaten from people in France, from Thailand, from all over. And it's sort of like a a look back in time as well to uh, the traditions of of styles of cooking. How much of an educational aspect is in this book? I think there's a lot of education in there. Um, If you don't know anything about Tucson, if if Black people seem invisible to you, after reading this book, I think you're going to realize they're not invisible. They had a community uh, back in the 40s and 50s and 20s and even before that. And then if you look at the community today, it looks at ways that Black people have connected, particularly during the COVID-19 experience that we had, how people made a point of connecting and finding ways to navigate in church services, in other meetings, on listservs. What do you think about this aspect of using food as a mode of communication to uh, connect with uh, different people in different cultures? Well, people like to eat. So (laughs) this is a connection because if you look in there, you're going to see all of the old time favorites. You'll see pound cake, sweet potato pie. You'll see barbecue. You'll see pot liquor. I didn't even know what pot liquor was until this book first came out. You know, it's the, the, the liquid in the greens and they called it pot liquor. You'll see all of that, but then you'll also see vegan meals. You'll see Caribbean food. Oh my gosh, there's a Jamaican recipe in there. And that's something that I really, really enjoyed. The person who made that um, was a professor from Africana Studies at the University of Arizona. And uh, she made that recipe for me. And I was, oh my goodness, this is so good. So there's, um, you know, there's a lot in here. It, it's not just recipes. It's people who made the recipes and where they came from and their perspectives on life. Black people have always been important. We've always had an impact. And if you didn't know it before, you certainly will get some of that from the book. Tani Sanchez, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show. The book is Meals and Memoirs 2, Recipes and Recollections of African Americans in Tucson, Arizona. It's available online from booksellers including Amazon and Barnes & Noble. There's a reason why the celebrated movie monsters of Universal Studios are still recognized today. Dracula, the Frankenstein monster, the mummy, the wolfman, the invisible man, they all contain a note of sadness a sympathetic quality to their monstrous nature that continues to resonate across generations. The true end of an era came last month on February 27th with the passing of Rico Browning at age 93. He was never a household name, but Browning was a Florida native who enjoyed underwater feats, becoming what could be considered the equivalent of a TikToker in his day, filming underwater stunts with his friends. That eventually led to him being cast as the most famous underwater monster of them all, the creature from the Black Lagoon. Rico Browning did all of the creature's aquatic appearances across three films for Universal in the 1950s. He went on to a career in underwater stunts, filmmaking, and even co-created the series Flipper. 
Here to talk about Browning's career in light of his passing is Tom Weaver, a film fan who's written and co-written more than 40 books about early horror and science fiction classics. He was a tremendously nice guy, just a Florida kid who in the 40s started hanging out at different um, springs throughout the state. At that point, they were trying to make some of these middle-of-the-jungle, middle-of-nowhere, beautiful springs, tourist attractions and hot spots. And as a teenager, Rico started working at some of them, doing things as mundane as, you know, diving down to the bottom and pulling up seaweed that swimmers might get caught in, to performing underwater for the benefit of tourists in glass-bottom boats. And during that time, he learned how to breathe underwater through a hose. And he learned how to put it into his mouth or near his mouth and take as much air as he needed and, um, and then continue with his work. That served him very well. He was even, in, as a teenager, he was in a lot of newsreels in the 1940s and a lot of photographs all done to publicize these springs. And he and his friends, other actors, quote-unquote, would do crazy stuff like, you know, drive down to the bottom of a spring in a car and get out of it as if they were in a park and have a picnic and things like that at the bottom of the of the spring. And how he got the role of the creature is, the guy who ran these springs and taught him how to breathe with a hose, he was supposed to show some Hollywood people around Wakala Spring in um, Florida. They were considering making a movie there because the water is so clear. They were going to make an underwater picture, and they wanted to see the spring and figure out if they wanted to make it there. And this guy, Newt Perry, suddenly became unavailable, and he asked Rico, would you show these Hollywood people around? And he went to the airport and picked them up and brought them to the spring and showed it to them. And one of them was a cameraman who'd brought his camera, and he was going to go underwater and film. And he asked Rico, would you mind just coming underwater with me and swimming around so when they watch these rushes in Hollywood, they'll be able to... um..." And Rico went down and did that. After that, the Hollywood people left, and he thought that was the end of it. But a few weeks later, his phone rang, and it was the director, Jack Arnold, who was one of the guys who had come to Florida. And he said, I like the spring, and I I want you in the movie because I like the way you swim. Would you play the creature? And Rico's like, what are you talking? What creature? Nobody told them what the movie was. He just picked these people up and showed them the spring. Oh, it's it's going to be about, I would love to. And that's how he got the role of the creature from the Black Lagoon, just by working there and and agreeing to swim in front of the camera so that the um, the footage would look better when they watched it in Hollywood. I'm sure that Rico was in for a bit of a shock, though, when not long after that he found out the difficulty he was going to have swimming in a full, completely covering rubber bodysuit. What can you tell us about what Rico had to endure to bring the creature to life? Well, even before he started swimming in an overcoat, which was the way he described it to everybody. He had to go out to Universal and have have the costume made. They wanted it to be like a second skin. They wanted it to be as form-fitting as possible. So they did all these plaster casts of different parts of his body. And once those dried into those casts, they would pour more plaster. And now they would have perfect uh, replicas of Rico's face and his back and his this and his legs and his that. And that way um, they could make the pieces of foam rubber creature costume over these molds and the first one they made was like half human half fish it really looked very very silly 
In fact, I don't know if the word sucks was uh, was in common use back then, but according <laughs> to Rico, one of the heads of the studio, after it was over, stood up and said, that sucked. Um, so they knew they had to make it a lot more monstrous. So they did make a much more monstrous-looking creature, and Rico tested in the studio tank and with Julie Adams, the eventual star of the movie, and then off to Florida. And the first challenge was the suit was made of foam rubber, so you jump into water and you try to swim down, and you can't. There's just no way to get under the surface when you're in case. It's like, it's like if you had a life preserver on or something. You try to drown. I'm drown myself. You give yourself a heart attack before you'd ever be able to get two inches below the surface. Um, so they had to put all these different weights, um, big flat pieces of metal into his costume here and there to pull him down. Um, and that's the only way he could get underwater. And then once there... As they were shooting scenes, he would have different people stationed around him with the air hoses because there was no way, obviously, the suit was like a second skin, as I described a minute ago, so there was no way to put a tank of air on the back. There was no way to do anything for him except have these people stationed around with their air hoses, and there would be a signal underwater where he would let them know when he was out of breath. He could hold his breath several minutes at a time, but then when he finally got out of breath, he would have to signal to these guys, and they'd swim in, one would swim in and give him the air hose, and he would sit there and take all the air he wanted until he was ready again. And, and even then, one of the delays was the head would fill with air. I mean, there'd be air all around his head inside the mask underwater. It would slowly be seeping out of the top of the head a few bubbles at a time, so they had to squish all the air out of his head before they could proceed. And then he'd be ready, and he'd go into the scene and do whatever he had to do, get in a fight, chase somebody, whatever he had to do, until he was pooped out again, and he would signal, and they would bring the air in. It's just unimaginable to me, and I'll bet to you and, and anybody else listening, but he, he made it sound like it was easy for him because he'd been doing it for so long. And then there was also vision because the head was a tiny bit bigger than um, than his head. There was a little bit of room in between. He had to look out the eye holes in the head, and they were, you know, like an inch or so in front of his face. So it was, he described it as trying to look out, look through a keyhole, the two little things, eye holes he described as keyholes. It was like trying to look out a keyhole when your eyes are a couple of inches from the keyhole and with water in your eyes. So he said vision was always a challenge underwater. So Rico Browning took his natural abilities uh, managed to parlay them into a career that extended into the Flipper TV show and all sorts of underwater action where he was either a performer or a camera person. Uh, what about his personal life? What do you want people to know about what Rico Browning achieved for himself? From where I'm sitting, living in New York, and knowing um, Rico just a little bit from phone conversations now and then and seeing him uh, different monster movie conventions. He struck me as a very nice guy. He has a devoted daughter, Renee, who used to go with him to the conventions. I got the idea that he had a long and very, very happy family life with four kids and you know, 86 grandkids and 126 <laughs> yeah, yes. great grandkids, etc. And what I loved, too, was when I first interviewed him back in the late 80s or early 90s, that was at a point when he hadn't done any monster movie conventions yet and didn't seem to want to. And I would bring up, you know, when are you going to start doing the monster movie conventions? And he would not interested. You know, he would just 
suddenly, suddenly a little bit of ice would come into his voice. He just was not interested. He, I don't think he quite understood why so much fuss was made over the creature movies. They were, it was so easy for him that it just seemed silly, I think, those of us who were so devoted to the creature movies. But finally, the creature convention came to him. There was one in Florida that had uh, Julie Adams at it and some other people that were associated with the movie. And um, somehow he got talked into going, and he had fun. And the next thing you know, he was at one convention after another, after another, after a while, he he became ubiquitous. And it was so nice to see this 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 stern old guy who was happy to talk about the creature, but don't ask me to do any more than that. Suddenly, embrace how much the fans loved the creature, and um, he was a, a fixture at cons from then on, and had a great time. He even continued to do them after he was in a wheelchair. Rico Browning passed away on Monday, February 27th at his home in Florida. My guest was Tom Weaver, who along with David Schechter and Steve Cronenberg, co-wrote The Creature Chronicles, exploring the Black Lagoon Trilogy. It seems I've long embraced grief as an ally in my life, soothing the many losses along the way. Those are the words of Rick Wehmer from the preface to his poetry collection, Long Shadow Days, Grief Walking. A near-future spotlight will include a full interview, but for now, here is Rick Wehmer reading a poem about unexpected companionship. This poem is called Vivian. What a kit, this cat. Comes fully assembled, some parts disposable. Hairball regurgitation, the least desirable. White mittens rise, paws coloring to gray striped leggings. Pursed white triangle snout, Cheshire grin in profile. What a kit, this cat. Piece of work. Expectant 5 a.m. muse. Demanding she is for her pre-dawn fet. Chasing my tracks to bedroom. No effort leap. Head first curl onto her side. Stretched out body awaiting massage. What a kit, this cat. Orphan upon the steps. Our newly purchased home. Interloper. Now resident. Vertical glistening eyes hide her sly device. Give just enough to seduce. Claim her title entitled. What a kit this cat comes fully assembled. No part disposable. Hairball regurgitation. Now deigned tolerable. That was Rick Wehmer reading Vivian from his collection, Long Shadow Days, Grief Walking. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.